Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Nishama Franklin. And I realized that it was time for me to hand my G-string over to the next person in line. You may be surprised who that was. Who in blazes could that be? You'll just have to stick around and find out. But first, dear listener, do you remember a time that you had an impactful experience around sports? Maybe you suffered an injury during a championship. Maybe you quit a team in a huff. Maybe you coached a kid's team. Or maybe you scored expensive seats at the Super Bowl. Anything. Stories about sports. Pitch them to us. All you need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. We'll be right back. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Folks, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Broken Social Scene behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Seasons of Love. (laughs) With one story set in the summer of love and the other, well, (laughs) you know, metaphorically, you could say it stretches into the colder days of the year. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Nishama Franklin. But before that, a story from Mary Gossett. Now, this was recorded at the Asterisk Show in Minneapolis in October of 2023 that was produced by Zerman Zane and Amy Salloway as a benefit for Risk. Mary is a social worker, and when she took one of Amy Salloway's storytelling classes, Amy knew she had to ask Mary to be a part of a storytelling show someday. So, here it is. This is what happened. Here is Mary Gossett now with a story we call, When I Needed You the Most...
All right, it's 2018. I'm 34 years old and still single and ready to not be. I spent hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars paying for dating programs and those online dating sites that prey on desperate single women like myself. And to no avail, I was coming up empty and I was ready to give up. But I casually kept going on some of those free online dating sites. You all know the free online dating sites. And this particular one, Plenty of Fish. Anybody here? Any of plenty? I know. I know. There were plenty of fish, but none of them were particularly my type of fish. Uh, and most of the messages I would get on Plenty of Fish were like, hey. And nothing more than that. Uh, and I'm not going to respond to that. But I got one message from a guy named Andrew, and the message was probably more than four sentences long. I could tell that he read my profile, which is very unusual on Plenty of Fish. And a warm sensation bubbles up in me, and I think, well, maybe there's hope. And so I message him back. Well, Andrew and I, we message back and forth for a couple of days. And on our third message conversation, he discloses to me that he's a wheelchair user. And frankly, I'm a little hesitant. I don't know that you could tell, but I was also very desperate. And so his messages, his words made me feel good. And I thought, well, who am I to make any judgment by somebody's ability to be mobile? So I decided to give Andrew as much of a chance as I would any other fish in the sea. <laughs> so Andrew and I finally meet. We meet in a Mexican restaurant. I remember walking in, taking a deep breath, thinking, okay, where is he? I, there's only one guy in the restaurant in a wheelchair. Well, that must be him. So I walk over, hi, Andrew, I say, and he looks at me and smiles and has this gorgeous smile and the most beautiful blue eyes. And I'm smitten. Uh, he says, hi, Mary. And then I realize, okay, I have to greet him somehow. I mean, you don't shake hands on a first date. And so I kind of bend down, like, <laughs> give this like awkward wheelchair side hug. And uh, he's probably used to those, but I was not used to those. And Andrew orders taquitos at the restaurant. And I later realized that he probably orders taquitos because they're easy to eat. His hands are not very nimble. He spills some salsa on his shirt. I'm trying not to stare, and I think maybe this was an overcorrection. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to objectify him, but I'm also really just, I feel like this is awkward. <laughs> well, most men on their first dates really like to talk about themselves. Sorry, but that's like a thing. <laughs> well, Andrew wasn't like most men. He listened to me and asked me about myself, and I was in school at the time. He asked me about school, what I liked to do, a kind of normal, light first date conversations, but it was about me. And suddenly, I'm not so worried about the salsa on his shirt, and he laughs at my jokes, and he laughs with his full body, and it's absolutely adorable. And I decide, well, we're going to give this a chance. So we continue to go on dates. We talk on the phone every night, and we decide to be mutually exclusive. Our relationship in dating is not easy. Andrew doesn't drive, and so our dating routine consists of me driving to his apartment complex, getting out of my car, meeting him at the curb, giving him the awkward wheelchair hug, giving him a kiss, then him wheeling over to my chair. I stabilize the chair. He gets into my car. I wheel the chair to the back of my car. I open up the car, put his wheelchair in, go to the other side, get in, drive. We have to find accessible dating spots. We have to find accessible parking. If we're in a crowd of people, we have to kind of like swim through crowds. And it's just not it's not always easy. And my friends, they would look at us, and I always wonder if other people would look at us and say things like this, but my friends would say, Mary, you're such a good person. And I feel really embarrassed because that's, I'm not, I, this is not like a pity thing. I, like, I really enjoy being around Andrew and I love him for all that he is. One night he says, Mary, I love you. And I say, I love you too. 
And even though it's hard, Andrew is my first love. And my hormones follow suit. So I yearn to make love with Andrew, but I don't know how to bring it up. But I don't, I don't know how it all works. Um, and not, you don't learn it about disability sex and sex ed. So I, uh, I didn't, I didn't know how to bring it up. And one night I said, Andrew, can we have well? And he smirked and he said, "Sex." And, and I said, oh, thank you for saying it so I didn't have to. And he said, Mary, I would love to have sex with you, but can we talk about it first? What? What kind of an adult is this? This is like a miracle moment. I'm so relieved that he wants to talk about it. So he tells me that his best friend's wedding is coming up and he'd like to reserve a hotel room for after the wedding and that would be our target date. And I count down the days. <laughs> well, two weeks later, this was uh, on the morning of July 22nd, 2018, I get out of bed like any other morning and I put my feet on the floor and I cannot feel the floor under my right foot. And this is kind of strange. The numbness kind of travels up the right side of my body. Well, that night I was at Andrew's place and I blamed him. I said, you remember how I pushed you up that steep hill last night? I think, I think you pinched a nerve. And uh, he was very sweet about it and said, well, thank you for your help. And he has very strong hands from like, propelling himself. And he put his hands on my shoulders and massaged them and said, does this help? Well, it didn't make me emotionally, but physically it didn't. My symptoms got worse. And a few days later, I went to the ER. I was eventually wheeled back to have a brain MRI. And after what felt like hours of being surrounded by a tube of vibrating, beeping noises, and I had this like kind of cage over my face that they do in brain MRIs, it was quite uncomfortable and felt a little bit torturous. I'm finally wheeled back to the ER room and the doctor comes in. I'm convinced I have a brain tumor by this time after being in the ER or in the, in the MRI for a long time and I'm pretty sure I'm gonna die. And so the doctor says, well, we got the MRI results and saw the images and we saw something. I took a breath, said, okay, here it comes. He says, we saw what are called lesions on your nerves. We believe it to be multiple sclerosis. I thought I had a brain tumor and I didn't know anything about MS. So to be honest, I was quite relieved. Well, before I was sent home, a neurologist came to my room and explained that MS is like scars that eat away on the myelin sheath of the nerves in my central nervous system. And once there's a scar, it doesn't go away and symptoms may not go away either. I learned that MS is chronic, progressive, and incurable. I imagine myself in a wheelchair rolling next to Andrew, and I think, can two people with disabilities be in love? I go to Andrew's house that night to tell him in person. I was diagnosed with MS, I tell him, and he grabs my right hand with his long, strong fingers, and my hand is numb, so I don't feel it. But he looks at me with his blue tender eyes and he says, you're strong, we'll get through this. Remember the wedding's coming up. <laughs> well, I tell Andrew I still wanna go. I wasn't feeling super well, but I really, really wanna go. It was the only thing I was excited about at that time in my life. And a day before the wedding, I start to feel this crawly sensation traveling across my back, into my arms, my neck, my legs. It was like I was being submerged in a pot of bugs. Uh, and then the crawly sensation turns into numbness and weakness. And I coach myself, I'm going to this wedding. I don't want Andrew to know that things are getting worse. I am going to this wedding. Well, the wedding is at a Holiday Inn. The service is short, then there's dancing and food at the, at the reception. I go to the dance floor. I can't move my legs very well, so I just kind of bob and I move my arms and 
And Andrew, well, he can't move his legs very well either, so he kind of bobs and moves his arms. And we're just doing our thing. Uh, next, the DJ plays, I'll make a love to you on the speakers. And so it's time to slow dance. Slow dancing for anybody is awkward, but slow dancing with a man in a wheelchair is very, very awkward. So I put my arms out to his shoulders, across his chair. He puts his hands on my waist. I don't feel his hands and we sway. <laughs> and the room is spinning. And all I'm doing is focusing on my feet on the floor so that I don't fall onto Andrew. After about 45 minutes, I go upstairs to the hotel room. I'm exhausted. I slide into bed. Andrew comes into the room about an hour later, and he slides into bed, and he wraps his arms around me. He moves his head close to mine, and I can't feel his body. And I just yearned to feel his warmth. This was supposed to be the moment, and I know I can't do it. And so without even trying, I just give up. I don't say anything, I close my eyes, and I roll out of his arms, and we sleep on opposite sides of the bed. On Monday, my doctor fits me into a schedule. At my appointment, my doctor evaluates my strength and he tells me I need to go to the hospital. I agree, I'm actually kind of relieved. He explains that the only means of treatment that may or may not improve my symptoms is to have plasma exchange. He says, it's like dialysis for your plasma. You'll be there about two weeks. So I go to the hospital, I'm admitted to the neurology floor. New MRI results show that I have a new lesion in my cervical spine and the best way to decrease the inflammation is through IV steroids. So I received this drip of methylprednisone into my veins. My body inflates from all this excess fluid. I feel like my skin could just pop as if it was a water balloon being poked by a pin. And Andrew and I, we talk on the phone every night. He would say, Mary, you're strong. And he'd try to cheer me up. In each conversation, I fell asleep before he hung up the phone, and he would just gently, calmly say, Mary, I love you, have a good sleep. And he would call me back the next day. And when he could, he came to visit me. And he would encourage me to practice my physical therapy exercises, which includes walking down the halls using my walker. And I would just shuffle a centimeter at a time, focusing on every single little step. I was wearing these green non-skid hospital socks. I couldn't talk because I was focusing so hard on not falling. And Andrew would slowly roll behind me. You're doing great, he'd say. And the nurse floor, the floor nurse, walked next to Andrew to catch me if I fell or I needed a hand. Because Andrew, he couldn't catch me. He couldn't really help me physically at all. After two weeks in the hospital, I was discharged to my home. And Andrew and my relationship shift. Neither of us can drive. Neither of us can help each other with practical needs. And for the first time in our relationship, I feel pretty needy. I'd say, can you come over to my house this time? I really want to see you. And it's hard for Andrew to get a ride over to my house. He'd say, sorry, Mary, I can't come. Maybe, maybe this weekend. I expect Andrew to understand my emotional struggles, but he's had a disability his whole life. And I grow jealous of Andrew's abilities to pivot, to adjust, to tolerate. We compare symptoms. We both have spasticity. That's a word that I had to practice saying quite a few times. We both have weakness. He compares me to his friends with cerebral palsy. He says, you know Ashley, she uses a posterior walker. It's the kind that goes behind her back. I think, oh yeah, now you're the expert on my durable medical equipment. <laughs> One Saturday, I arranged to see Andrew in his apartment. We hadn't seen each other in weeks. And I limp to his door with my walker. I knock, he lets me in. We sit on the couch, he doesn't hug me. And we talk about our relationship, the current barriers and struggles. 
And he said, you know, Mary, I know it was really hard for you with, well, with me. And now it's even harder with, well, with you. And I, I just, I think I need to think about this. I want to yell. Think about us? What happened to the months of me carting you around? I thought you loved me. I want to change his mind. I want to convince him that we can work it out, but I'm so tired. So I say, okay, call me when you're ready. I grab my walker and trounce out his door. Andrew calls me two days later. I thought a lot about us. And I just don't, don't think I can do it. Is he really doing this? I can't speak. I hang up the phone and I look around and I'm all alone. How could he do that when I needed him the most? After all that I did for him, and he just leaves, I saw him as strong and compassionate. He was my first love. I later learned that many young adults break off romantic relationships after a new diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. We were no exception. I'm sure you can tell that today, four years later, I've improved. I'm doing quite well. I get infusion treatments every six months. Physical therapy, good medicine has helped. I still have symptoms on a daily basis, but I have tools to tolerate my body. I'm able to work full-time. The National MS Society, woo woo! <laughs> I even play pickleball a few nights a week. I'm one of those people. <laughs> I haven't been in a stable relationship since Andrew, because dating with a disability is hard. It's complicated. I know from both sides. And Andrew wasn't there for me when I needed him. But guess what? I was. Over the past four years, I look back and I realize there's one common denominator. Me. I've not left myself. You might have thought this was going to be some sexy, hot, romantic love story when I started. So sorry if you're disappointed. But it is still a love story. A love story about deep, unconditional love that's never going away. It's a story about loving myself. And that's enough. Thank you. Joy Alatakun behind me now, and we just heard from Mary Gossett. Folks, one of our Patreon patrons, Taylor, recently sent us this note with their donation. Taylor said, 
it's not much, but I could never forgive myself if risk went away and I didn't give when I had the chance. I've been listening since 2016 and can say that the show has fundamentally changed me as a person. It's changed my outlook on other people and allowed me to extend more grace toward others. This show has been there when I felt alone. It's helped me feel more connected to the greater fabric of humanity and embrace unloved parts of myself. Long live the weirdos. Thank you for everything you've done. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Getting messages like this really is, honestly, it really is so much of what keeps us going. The moral support, not just the financial support. And for our Patreon supporters, we have a new bonus story out right now from Kate Cunningham. And it sounds a little bit like this. I tried to look away, but I couldn't. It was like we were locked in this gaze, just his face inches from my face. And then I felt this warmth just start to gather between my legs and spread. And I had urinated all over myself, all over my bed. I tried to scream out for help, but I couldn't. I tried to move, but I was completely paralyzed. And there's so much more where that came from at patreon.com slash risk. Now, next, we're going to hear from Nishama Franklin. Nishama works at the Fairfax Library in Marin County, where she hosts Marin Poets Live. And here she is now with a story we call The Hippie Dance of Love. Nobody ever wonders how the strong stay strong They get what they want and then they move along They never think twice about what could be Does anybody wonder when the legends die young If there's anything that we could have done To stop a strong one from taking the heat So, I was a little girl in New York City. This was the early 40s. All I wanted to do was dance. Now, I love music, but I never learned how to read music, read the notes. So my body was my instrument. That's what I had. But there was a problem. My body didn't look like a dancer's body. I had heavy legs and stiff feet, even as a little kid. But I didn't care because I loved it and I would dance around the living room passionately to recorded music. Oh, it made me so happy. I was passionate about it. And then when I was old enough, I would go to dance classes in New York City. And they were formal and they were serious and I was a good student and I did everything as well as I could. And I kept doodling this funny leg. It was from the calf down and it was a beautiful pointed foot in a point shoe. And so that's what I wanted for myself. But I knew I would never become <clears throat> a professional dancer. I mean, I didn't have the body for it. However, I danced my heart out in New York City and I just loved it. Now, we're going to skip to grown-up times. I got married. I had a kid. My husband said, uh, this is no place to bring up a kid. Now, I grew up in New York City, but still, he said, we need more freedom. Let's go to San Francisco. And I didn't want to leave my friends, my dance classes, my family, but I was, you know, a good wife, and I loved him, and why not? So I had to ask my dancer friends, who should I study with? And they all looked blank because it was so far away. And then somebody said, you know, Anne Halperin, she's doing some interesting work. And so that's what I had to connect with. So as soon as I hit San Francisco, and you should know this was in the late 60s. If you're going to and as soon as I got to San Francisco, I looked her up and I checked her out. Now, I discovered that she was doing her dance classes across a bridge in Marin County on a deck under the trees. But, you know, 20 blocks from me, there was 
a city annex, which was called kind of pretentiously Dancer's Workshop Theatre. So I trotted down those 20 blocks and I walked up the stairs in this kind of slightly derelict looking building. And there it was a cavernous room kind of down at the heels and it was full of people and none of them looked like dancers. They were old people and young people and fat people and thin people. It was thrilling, you know, because there I was. And the teacher, he certainly didn't look like a dancer to me. His name was A.A. Leith, and you know I never found out what A.A. stood for. And he had a kind of a beard and rimless glasses at the end bandy legs and his expression well I, all I could think of was I was looking at a pissed off botanist you know he's kind of squinty but but he was the teacher and I am a student and this is what he told us to do he said you see all those papers lying around stacks of newspapers take one sheet and crumple it up and throw it on the floor and just keep doing this till the floor is covered with crumpled newspapers and then take off your clothes and roll around on these newspapers and see how it makes you feel see what you notice and uh, see how it makes you want to move and again because I'm a good student I did it stripped off the clothes rolled around and you know it felt wonderful. It was so interesting. It was fun. And I realized then, you know, I had probably found my people, my tribe. And uh, I was launched on whatever the hell we were doing, even though it was called Dancer's Workshop Theater. I don't know what we were doing. So then I had another kid and AA, he had a couple of toddlers. And as an avant-garde dance teacher, you don't make a lot of money. But he was very clever, and he came up with this brilliant idea. He went down to North Beach, where there are a lot of nightclubs, and he pitched this to various nightclub owners. He said, you know, the people, the tourists, they really want a taste of this psychedelic experience. But if they went down to Hate Street, where it's supposedly happening, you know, what would happen? That Somebody might thrust a wilted rose at them. That's not so bad. Somebody might try to press drugs on them. They were smelly. They were dirty. We can bring the psychedelic experience to you. Uh, you know, they can just sit at their tables clutching their drinks and they can feel safe. And so a particular nightclub owner, he went for it. And that was the beginning of the hippie dance of love. And uh, in order to do uh, the hippie dance of love, you need a partner. And guess who he chose? He, cho yeah, he chose me. I was flabbergasted. How among all these people did he choose me? You know, mother of toddlers, etc. I think it's because he sensed something in me, something very willing, something that had been kind of bottled up in all those years of being good student, good mother, good wife, etc. And so I was his partner and I was going to get paid for dancing. I could not believe it. I was going to become a professional dancer. I was so excited because I'd been hanging out with these little children and it's, I have to admit, love or not love, it's boring. But here I had something to really look forward to. I, I like to sew and I knew I needed a costume. So I went down to the fabric store and I found this kind of sleazy piece of slightly translucent fabric with a, you know, psychedelic design on it. And I cut out the caftan and sewed it up easy on, easy off. And then I made myself a G-string because I, you know, a professional G-string is $8, ridiculous. And it's just a triangle of fabric and two loops of elastic. So I made that and I was ready. And then we went down to check out the venue. And the Roaring Twenties nightclub is venerable and uh, it has flocked wallpaper and it has an iconic girl on the swing, a gilded swing she swung over the heads of the drinkers and she didn't look anything like me. She had long legs with pointed feet. She had pneumatic breasts. And, and I, I'll tell you, mine were a little bigger since I had those children but they were nothing to write home about. 
and her long hair flowed behind her and mine frizzed out. I mean, I tried to grow it long, but it just grew wide. And she batted her eyes under these long lashes and I squinted through my new contact lenses. But still, there we were, there we were. And um, there was A.A. and he didn't exactly look like a hippie. I mean, he had that buzz cut and the beard and the glasses and the bandy legs and the expression but you can do wonders with costuming so you know the headband and the love beads and the loincloth and and we were ready so I'll tell you a little about how this dance was structured, if you can call it that. There was this grimy carpeted platform. It must have had curtains on either side. And we would come out on either side and we would kind of circle each other like boxers. And then we would take off as much as we could that we were wearing because they wanted flesh. And then we could do anything we wanted to do as long as the music lasted. So it was wide open, improvisation, all these dances that had been bottled up inside us, setting each other off, and we just had a glorious time of it. And then, it, you know, it had the beginning, the circling, and the end, we ended up in close proximity, very unclothed on this grimy carpeted platform, and then the music would stop, the lights would go off, it was over. And we did this four times a night, $25. I got paid for $25. And we, you know, we had these breaks, rather long breaks, and I could go into the green room and read because that was my second passion other than dance. You know, with little toddlers around, I didn't have much time to read. And I thought we absolutely had it made. But I have to tell you that when I first got out there, our very first performance, this is what happened. I stripped off the kaftan, and there were actually a few little snickers from some of those tables. And, and that's what I'd been afraid of, because they would see the girl on the swing, and they would see me with these heavy legs and small breasts and frizzy hair. They were going to see I was a fraud. I was not a professional dancer of any sort. But you know what I did? I did this kind of crazy Aikido flip in my mind. I said to myself, what we're doing is basically utterly ridiculous, so I'm going to do it for comedy. And so that's what we did that added that playful level to the hippie dance of love, and I think it worked very, very, very well. So there we were, having a glorious time on the stage, and I was pocketing the money and going home. Ooh, it was great. Now, while this was going on, you should know that at this time in the late 60s in San Francisco, my husband John and I were deep into the human potential movement, including hanging out with these ex-drug fiends, that's what they called themselves, who had gotten sober, but they had a lot of street smarts that they wanted to share with us. They, they were very contemptuous of us, but we were very interested in what they had to offer. And, uh, you know, they were a cult. They were... Uh, rather well-established. They were called Synanon. And they needed money to keep going. And one of the things we had to do was sell raffle tickets. And they were mean if you didn't sell enough raffle tickets. And I had this big roll, and who was I going to sell it to? The mothers at co-op nursery school? And then the light went on, because I realized right outside the door of the nightclub were all these tipsy tourists. And so... There we were at break, and I put on my mini dress and my kitten heels. I picked up my bag full of raffle tickets. I went out there. I was selling like crazy. They were buying, I think it was my post-performance glow. And I, I lost track of time. I luckily, I had a big watch. And I happened to just glance at the watch and I realized I was supposed to be on the stage of the Roaring Twenties at that very moment. So I turned, I ran through the club, through the tables, leapt onto the stage, stripped off the mini dress, kicked off the heels, flung my bag into a corner. Luckily, I was wearing the G-string. And A.A. was standing there, his arms akimbo. He was glowering. And he said, Nishama, you have been a very naughty girl and you will have to be punished. 
and he bent me over his knee and he gave me a bunch of slaps and you could say S&M <laughs> crept into the hippie dance of love. Now, it was going so well that I wanted my husband, John, to see what we were doing. And so he agreed. And so he hooked up the baby monitor that allowed the upstairs neighbors to listen to the kids. And he hopped on his Vespa and he putt-putted downtown and he sat at the table clutching a drink just like all the rest of them. And we did our show. And then I came out and said, okay, John, what do you think? What did you think of it? And he's a very kind person. <laughs> and he took a deep breath. And he said, you know, Nishama, there are some things that are perhaps more fun to do than they are to watch. But you don't have to really worry about it because with those psychedelic lights swirling around you, nobody can see what you're doing. Was this affirmation of my art? <laughs> no, not exactly. But I didn't care because I was getting paid for dancing and I was having a wonderful time of it. However, there were things that were going on that I kind of took me a while to recognize. And one of them was that this wonderful explosion of creative energy can't just keep going on and on and on. A and I were starting to repeat ourselves. We'd come out the same way, throw up our arms, circle the same way. It was starting to get just a little stale, a little pro forma. But I'm a kind of a, you know, I hang on. So I kind of ignored that. And then there were these realities of time. You know, this nubile body would sag with age. And then it was a summer of love. You know, it would be over. And then there were the exigencies of my everyday life. Because I would come home from performance, I was all jacked up, and it would take me a while to get to sleep. And then I had to get up at the crack of dawn and take the kids to go up nursery school. And I had a couple of little fender benders, you could call them little slaps on the cheek of the car. And I realized that it was time for me to hand my G-string over to the next person in line. You may be surprised who that was. It was a woman named Meredith Monk. Now, she was a new, newish performer in New York City, but wanted to see what Halpern was up to. And so she took over for me. And you could say at that very moment, just handing over that little piece of cloth, matter-of-factly, that, that was the G-string, that, that was the moment at which our lives took different paths. I stayed put in San Francisco and went on to my fulfilling life. When the kids got a little bigger, I became a school secretary, and then I became an editor, and then I became a librarian, which, of course, was my second passion, and that's what I'm still doing. And Meredith, well, after her summer of love in San Francisco, she went back to New York City, where she lives, and became a uh, rather renowned performance artist, choreographer, composer, you know, kind of in the bag of Patti Smith or Laurie Anderson. I stayed put, she soared. Now, she comes to the West Coast to perform periodically. And every time she comes, I check in with her. We had become friends in that summer at Dancers Workshop Theater. And we had this wonderful connection. And so I'd always come to see what she was up to. And then after her performance, we would meet and talk. And, you know, after a performance, you need food. So it was often in a restaurant. So this happened maybe about 20 years ago. But in any case, there we were in this restaurant. And she was surrounded by her acolytes. And they all seemed to be wearing designer glasses, <laughs> turtlenecks that were very serious, hanging on her every word. And she looked at me and she said, Hey, Nishama, you remember when you gave me my first G-string? And you should have seen their jaws drop. What were they seeing? Well, I think it's obvious, but then I was a grandmother with this frizzy gray hair. And I probably they could see the librarian chops that I exuded. And I was wearing kind of flowy clothes, hippie clothes, but still. The thing is, you never know what an old lady 
with frizzy gray hair has been up to. I have a theory that we are all like Russian nesting dolls. Everything important inside us is in there. All we have to do is reach in, find the container, twist off the top, and out it comes. So that's how something so long ago in San Francisco in 1967 is as alive right now to me as it is right then. I'm 84. I'm still working as a librarian. She became a professional dancer. I became a professional book person, and I love it. And you know, I'm still dancing, and it's still, after all these years, sparks such joy. This is Shiny Toy Guns behind me now. And we just heard from Nishama Franklin. You can find lots more of Nishama Franklin over on YouTube. This is such a sweet story. You know, I always say that I appreciate so much hearing from our elders. It's so valuable, I think, to hear from those who have cleared through some of these paths before and it was so fun to hear about the Meredith Monk connection there because she's one of my favorites I love you know so many of the kookiest performance artists Meredith Monk Laurie Anderson Yoko Ono and we've enjoyed putting little bits and pieces from all of those folks on the show over the years I'll tell you folks I was cast in a movie and have been up on the northern coast of Oregon. I'm going to be here for a few weeks, you know, January into February. And that might sound really glamorous, but in fact, it's starting to feel a lot like The Shining. (laughs) Because... I'm not in all that many scenes in the movie. I'm I'm a more minor role. And so there are just days and days that go by where I am alone in a hotel where almost no one else seems to be in the middle of nowhere, in the midst of constantly inclement weather. And the only thing to do is to drink at the pub across the street I mean, I will say another way that I've arrived at this being like The Shining is that once again, I've arrived at the conclusion, Jesus, God in heaven, do I have to stop drinking? (laughs) So let's hope I'm not um, having conversations with my fingers days from now or 
discovering any baseball bats or axes around here. And folks, the one place I can guarantee you won't be chased by axe-wielding murderers is the Risk Live show (laughs) in L.A. on February 20th. It is at 7.30 p.m. at the Lyric Hyperion. We've got Danny Ortiz, Elaine Gale, Peter Kim, and Sam Firestein. It is, of course, hosted by David Crabb. Don't miss it, L.A. That is February 20th at the Lyric Hyperion. And, of course, tickets are always at risk-show.com slash live. We'll be right back. We're back. Next week, we're going to have one of those one-story episodes. You know, a long story. And, oh my goodness, is this an extraordinary one. It's by Sri Rajendran. My grandma was standing in the middle of the road with tears just welling up in her eyes. And she looked up at me and she said in Tamil, My son... What is going on? And my grandma's probably the last person in my family who still loves me. I hadn't seen her in years. And I knew if I was to go through with this rescue mission, I'd probably never see her again because I knew with absolute certainty that my dad would do terrible things to her in retaliation like he's done to her in the past, like breaking her nose or making her bleed. He would make sure that she could never see me again. So look for that, but that's next week. And folks, Today's the day. (laughs) Take a risk.